Please uh, turn in your Bibles to Philippians uh, chapter 3. We'll be starting at verse 7. And as you do that, I wonder if uh, any of you uh, have watched any of the Olympics. Uh, This morning, the uh, Tokyo Olympics uh, wrapped up and all the runners and swimmers and cyclists and competitive walkers and whatever else uh, they do, uh, they'll wrap up, uh, they'll return home. And uh, after years of training, uh, these athletes have, for a few short weeks, participated in these events in hopes to show that they are uh, the greatest uh, in their field. So the races have have been completed, uh, the medals have been awarded. Well, one gets the sense from the Apostle Paul that he might have enjoyed uh, the Olympics as well. Uh, He spent a significant amount of time in Corinth, uh, which was the the host city uh, to the renowned Isthmian Games. And so uh, it was reasonable to assume that Paul had had paid a a fair bit of attention uh, to this celebrated sporting event. At the very least, we can say that Paul uh, saw uh, the the realm of sports to be a a fertile field for uh, sermon illustrations because he's frequently uh, turning to sports events and sports images to uh, try and express certain biblical truths to his audience, to those he's, he's writing to. He uses illustrations from boxing, from physical training, uh, from athletic award ceremonies, and even more commonly, he uses uh, the metaphor of a runner competing in a race, which is what we're going to see in our passage this evening. And so though Paul doesn't state that explicitly, he's going to use this metaphor of running a race to show us that the mature Christian life is the fervent, focused, and future-facing pursuit to know more of Jesus and his power at work in us. The fervent, focused, and future-facing pursuit of knowing more of Jesus. That's what a mature Christian is. And we'll see that by considering four points, resting in Jesus, running after Jesus, running because of Jesus, and the mature runner. Resting in Jesus, running after Jesus, running because of Jesus, and the mature runner. But let's uh, take up Philippians chapter 3. We'll start at verse 7 and focus on verses 12 to 16. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead." Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Fast for the Lord's help now. Father in heaven, as we come to these words, we pray that you would, uh, first of all, cause our hearts to rejoice in the fact that by grace you have captured sinners and you have 
uh, you have made us your own. But we pray, Lord, also that you would use these words from the Apostle Paul to strengthen us for the race that you set us on, that you would invigorate us, that you would give us energy to run with greater f- uh, focus and fervency, that we may, might take hold of the prize to which we have been called. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hopefully, uh, you'll recall uh, our last study in Philippians 3, where we looked at the great gift which, uh, Paul says, comes to all those who trust in Jesus alone for salvation. That was the righteousness uh, which comes from God and depends on faith. And we looked at how Paul had come to discover that he should put uh, no confidence in his uh, personal uh, uh, history, his inherited privileges or personal accomplishments in order to win the favor of God but that it was Paul's aim to know Christ and to gain Christ and to be found in Christ. Because for Paul, it was in knowing Christ by faith and only in knowing Christ by faith that he could come to know this righteousness that comes from God and come to know Christ's resurrection power, both now and in the future. And Paul's instructions in verses 7 through 11 show us that one of the main verbs, uh, shows us rather what one of the main verbs in the Christian life is. In the Christian life, we might have an interesting uh, discussion as to what the great verbs of the faith are. We could speak of dying and rising, of believing or trusting, obeying, and there's many other things we, we could suggest. I know that's in participial form, so if you're a grammar police, don't bust me for that. But Paul's teaching in our previous passage, though, makes cl- uh, clear that there's another critical verb that needs to be added to the discussion, and that's resting. To be a Christian, you must be resting, not in your own efforts or accomplishments, but resting in Jesus Christ and the righteousness that comes from him. This resting is, of course, not the sort of resting you may have done on your hammock this afternoon, but it's the action of placing all of our hopes, all of our confidence in this, uh, for this life and the next in Jesus alone. The Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it this way, That faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone for salvation as he's offered to us in the gospel. Resting is a critical aspect of faith because it shows that we have, have put an end to all of our futile strivings to fix the sin problem that exists between us and God. And and we uh, receive God's solution, his provision in his son. You cannot be a Christian if you're not resting in Jesus to be saved from your sin. You might call yourself a Christian. You might in many ways act like a Christian, uh, but you're not a Christian. To be a Christian is someone who rests in Jesus. But there's another verb, almost paradoxically, that uh, characterizes authentic Christian experience. It's an equally important part of our conception about what it means to truly be a Christian. You might at first think that I'm speaking in in contradictions when I tell it to you, but that's not the case. Clearly, Paul didn't think this was a contradiction, and I hope to show that to you before we're done. But here's the verb, pressing, pressing on, or running after. Just as we're called to rest in Jesus, to be a Christian also involves pressing after or running after Jesus. We won't understand what it means to be a Christian properly if we don't have this word in our vocabulary of Christian experience. And so let me show you from the text why this is the case. First, let's begin at verse 12. 
Paul says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. And then in verse 13, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Now it should intrigue us to to hear, here's Paul, the great apostle, saying that there's something that has eluded him, that has evaded him in the Christian life. He speaks of of missing something or or lacking something. Now, what could it be that that Paul is is missing? What's the this and the it that Paul is talking about? What does Paul not have yet? Well, Paul does not yet have a full knowledge of Christ and Christ's resurrection power in him. And this is what he pursues, a deeper, personal, transformative knowledge of Christ. Yes, Paul knows Christ truly. He knows Christ in part. He knows uh, Christ's life-giving power in part, but he does not know it in full. So how do we know that this is what Paul is talking about? Well, consider what Paul has been talking about in verses uh, 8 through 11 of this chapter. He's uh, made it clear by repetition that his great aim is to know and to gain Jesus. But this isn't some abstract or or theoretical knowing. Paul's not saying he simply wants to know uh, Jesus like we might know facts about Julius Caesar or, or Babe Ruth. We know this because Paul says in verse 10 that it's his desire to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Now, our default when we think of of resurrection is to think in the future sense of a bodily resurrection from the dead. However, as we noted last time, Paul speaks in a peculiar order in uh, verses 10 and 11. He speaks of resurrection and then suffering and death and then bodily resurrection. So when Paul speaks of knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection... First of all, he's speaking of the very real sense in which those who trust in Jesus come to know and experience Jesus' resurrection power now as we trust in Jesus. This is the sense that Paul uh, uses uh, uh, this resurrection language in Romans 6. He says there that we were buried, therefore, with Jesus by baptism in death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Got to catch that, that Paul is saying that we've been raised even now to live new and godly lives. Because, Paul says, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And Paul goes on to say in Romans that we've been raised with Christ, resurrected with Christ, so that our lives might bear fruit unto God. So those who trust in Jesus are united uh, to Jesus. We're filled even now with his resurrection power. And this resurrection power is not some superpower or some magic that will make you uh, successful or help you uh, skirt suffering, as I saw uh, one atrocious uh, uh, sermon as I was preparing for this message. Quite the opposite. This resurrection power is is shaping our character, shaping our conduct, so that they begin to look more like Jesus, especially as we endure suffering and hardships. Christ's resurrection power is displayed in us as it sustains us through trials and suffocates old sinful habits and and brings to life new God-pleasing virtues. In short... What Paul is saying here is that he wants to to come to know Christ and the power uh, and and his power in a deeply personal and transformative way. 
Or to use theological speak, what Paul is talking about in verses 12 and 13 is knowing Christ and his sanctifying power. This is why Paul also says he's not already perfect. Though he has come to know Jesus truly and savingly, he knows that he does not know him fully, nor has, have all the implications of knowing Jesus, uh, uh, have they been worked out in his life. Paul would be the first to tell you that there's uh, sin still living in him. He didn't look morally pure in the same way that Jesus was morally pure yet. He still had to do battle with sin. Paul talks right in Romans 7 about how the law awakens in him a sense of his covetousness. So Paul had to fight things like coveting and anger and fear. He hadn't arrived yet. And so Paul runs to know more of Jesus and Jesus' transforming power. But what's the manner of Paul's running after Jesus? How is Paul's running characterized? Well, we can say at least three things, and I gave them to you already. They start with the letter F. As Paul runs after Christ, he is fervent, he is focused, and he is future or forward-facing. First, Paul is fervent. He's making every effort. He's leaving it all on the floor, uh, to use the sports cliché. So what does Paul do about, uh, as he senses his, his imperfection, his falling short? He doesn't do um, like I do, uh, or like I respond when I, on rare occasions, go golfing. So uh, the idea of golfing sounds really idyllic and peaceful. I have the voices of the master's announcers in my brain as I, I, I trek out onto the, the course. Uh, but then when I actually get onto the course and begin uh, hacking at the ball and slicing it into who knows uh, uh, where, all right, it's a different experience. I quickly realize the gap between what I want to be and what I am is immense. And so I find this uh, utterly infuriating. And if I wasn't borrowing clubs, I would probably throw them into the pond, okay? I just can't, I can't do it, right? I, I, if, if I'm not going to be perfect or close enough, uh, I just want to give up. Although this is not Paul's attitude to the Christian life. He doesn't throw his hands up in despair uh, because of the gap between uh, what he wishes he would be and what he is. But he says, but I press on to know more of Christ, and more of Christ's power in me. I'm straining forward to know it. I'm pressing toward the goal of knowing Jesus Christ more deeply. Once again, I want to uh, remind you of the verbs to make this point because of how vivid and how dynamic Paul's use of them is. Pressing, straining. This is running language. You can easily picture in your mind's eye the marathon runner with his muscles taut, straining and reaching for the finish line with great effort. Being a Christian, according to Paul, is not like being a passenger on an airplane, relaxing in your seat, uh, uh, eating peanuts while you go to some vacation destination. Not at all. Though Paul understands and he rejoices in the fact that he's received the, the gift of salvation in Jesus by grace, and he rests in the righteousness that comes from God as the grounds of his salvation, receiving this gift does not make Paul passive like an airplane passenger. Rather, like an Olympic runner, he's entered into the arena and he's pressing forward. He's running after more of Christ in this life. Do you sense the urgency 
and the, the intensity with, with which Paul engages in this pursuit of knowing Jesus. Paul runs fervently. Secondly, we need to see that Paul runs with focus. What a challenge uh, this word is to us in an age of smartphones and streaming services, right? We hear it again and again. We live in a, a distracted age. Focus is something that many of us struggle at. But Paul pursues Christ with a great focus. But one thing I do, he says. Paul describes himself as a man of of singular intent. He desires to know uh, more of Jesus, and so he's gripped uh, so, so that all of his efforts are directed toward this end. He's like the runner who's intent on, on uh, the finish line and the prize. And so everything around him, uh, the other runners, the fans, the noise, they all fade into the background for him. Now, of course, Paul is, is occupied with other things, uh, the practicalities of, of planting churches and writing letters to churches and the affairs of, of everyday life. But what he means is that there is one dominant aim in his life and that all other things are subordinate to that. And that aim is knowing more of Jesus. Maybe you recall the story of Jesus visiting his good friends Mary and Martha. These women welcome Jesus into their home, and Luke tells us that Mary sat at Jesus' feet to listen to his teaching, but Martha was distracted with much serving. And when she comes to complain to Jesus that her sister is not helping out, he tells her, Martha, Martha. You're anxious and you're troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary, and that's to sit at the feet of her Savior while he was yet with them. Paul wants us to be clear on what should be the overarching aim of our life as those who have come to rest in Jesus' saving work. It's very easy to become consumed by all sorts of things. We can become distracted by news and politics, by parenting, by work, by the current crisis in our family. In the church, we can become distracted by ministry programs and activities, by preparing lessons and crisis intervention. And while there's a time and a place for these things, Paul's one thing puts into focus for us what we should be about, knowing Christ and his power more and more. Nothing can trump, nothing can supersede this pursuit. And the third manner in which Paul runs also speaks to the issue of distractions. He's forward-facing. Forgetting what lies behind and straining to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul's again speaking of running to attain the reward which he was effectually called to at his conversion. This this prize which he he, uh, longs for, which he's moving toward, is again Christ. Now, this point is is related to the previous one about focus because one of the ways that we can become distracted as Christians is by living in the past. Earlier in this chapter, Paul has said uh, that he's no longer going to put any confidence in his past history or his past accomplishments, uh, not in his his upbringing or or anything he's done. He's not going to look back on these, but neither will Paul look back on the past graces that he's received, the good things. Many of us know people who uh, choose to live life in the past, oftentimes. Uh, they, sometimes they just want to live in the good old days and coast off past memories. In uh, friendships, uh, they always like to reminisce about old memories and, and uh, never cultivate a, cultivate a, a fresh intimacy uh, with uh, those they spend time with. 
Well, some people do the same thing uh, spiritually speaking. They live on the past. They live off the fumes of their story about becoming a Christian or long past memories of intimacy with God. And of course, these are good things and these are things that we should use to encourage us in the race and and stimulate obedience. Paul's not going to let the past, whether it be good things or bad things, distract him from moving deeper and more fully into the riches of Jesus. I want to stop here and consider for a second how significant Paul's words are. Because these words are dynamite to a flimsy, dull views of Christianity that so many people hold and and the reason why so many people are bored by Christianity both inside and outside the church. It's true that many people find Christianity exceptionally boring and uninspiring. Perhaps you uh, here tonight are among them. And based upon what's promoted in Christianity, oftentimes, I wouldn't blame you. You and I want to give ourselves to great causes. And this is why so many people throw themselves into movements and marches. We want to give ourselves to something that's significant, to something that matters, to something that's going to stretch us and and challenge us. So when we hear uh, of a, a Christianity being proposed that's really only concerned about being safe uh, from sin and then waiting for some uh, future reward, we're uninspired, right? We, this view of, of, of Christianity, which is like car insurance, right? We receive it and then we just put it in the glove compartment while we wait for something to happen, right? Of course, th- th- I don't blame you. That's not the Christianity of the Bible, though. It's certainly not the Christianity of this text. To be a Christian is to be caught up by the grace of God into this great pursuit whereby day by day and year by year and decade by decade, we press on to know more of the Son of God and His power in us. It's a a dynamic thing in that we're seeking to know more of Jesus' life-changing power in us. It's a demanding thing. It requires all of our powers and yet still on our own we can't make the first step as we work out what God works in. It's a lifelong thing and that we'll never complete this work, this side of heaven, or be able to say we've done all there is. It's also a certain thing because God will complete the good work that he's began in all those he calls. It's a great thing to be a Christian. And if we're to be Christians in the sense that the Apostle Paul was, then we then need to make it our life's aim to know more of Christ. This is why we pick up our Bibles and why we pray. This is why we join small groups and pursue uh, intentional Christian community. This is why we gather Sunday morning and Sunday evening for worship. It's why we sing biblical truths to one another and and come to the Lord's Supper uh, together. Because we're caught up in a great race. We're called to press on and to know more of Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, uh, the Lamb who was slain, the Lion of Judah. We're running, we're straining, we're pressing to know Him. Maybe another illustration at this point would be helpful. Uh, Over the last couple months, we've gone on uh, vacation a a couple times with our three young kids, and both times we've uh, rented uh, houses, which have uh, proved to be a great fascination to our kids. And when we arrive and we enter into whatever apartment we're staying at, uh, the kids ask in awe, this is our apartment, right? They're just blown away. And it's not like, a, you know, it's a, we're talking about a three-bedroom as cheap as I can get. And, and, but they're like, this is great. 
And when we confirm for them that, yeah, this is the apartment, what do they do? They take off and they explore their house. They're running and they're pressing and jostling each other and knocking each other over as they explore all the cool features of this new house. Well, in a way, that's what it's like to be a Christian. We're welcomed into Christ securely, but we don't want to loiter on the front step, on the entryway. I mean, there might be plenty there, but we're in Christ and there is more to explore than just the doorway. We'll want to explore our new refuge. We're going to want to see all the breathtaking features and, and, and sights of what it means to belong in him. Not only what it means to, to uh, have our sins forgiven as great as that is, but what it means to be cleansed and what it means to be increasingly made pure and holy. To, to explore what can Christ do with my, with my anger problem? What can Jesus do with my marriage? What can Jesus do with my addictions and my fear? And so we run, pressing, straining to know more, explore more, see more of Jesus. Is that how you describe your Christian life? Please understand, I'm not asking you if you've achieved a certain level of knowledge or holiness, nor am I asking you to compare yourself uh, to others. But I'm asking whether this posture of the apostle is yours. I'm asking whether you are pressing on to know more of Christ and his power in your life. Is there a deep and righteous hunger in you to know Jesus better? Maybe you're thinking, uh, it was there and I'm not sure what's happened. Or if I'm honest, my fervency wanes, my focus is is fickle, Uh, I'm not always looking ahead, I'm not always pressing on as I should. That was my conviction as I I read uh, this text and studied this text this week. Well, let me just encourage you to do two things with that thought. First, confess it to the Lord right now. Admit it to him. All right, Lord, that's me. I don't want it to be. I wish it wasn't. Help me to press on to know more of Jesus. You can do that. He knows it already. But then let me direct you to our next point, running because of Jesus. What's the motor behind Paul's persistent pursuit? Because anything that takes a significant effort requires a compelling reason why. Why do you fail to keep your commitment to going to the gym or your commitment to a certain diet plan? Because you're not captivated by a compelling reason to put forth the effort, to sweat, to forgo the hamburger, uh, to strain, to get up early. So what's motivating Paul? Well, look back at verse 12. Paul's pursuit to take hold of, of Jesus more is driven by Jesus first taking hold of Paul. It was Jesus who had arrested Paul on the road to Damascus and seized him. There Paul was going to uh, persecute the early followers of Jesus. And though he claimed to be doing God's work, he was in fact an enemy of God as he persecuted Christ and his church. But as Paul writes to the Galatians, it was on that road that God, who had set Paul apart before he was born and who had called Paul according to his grace, it was there that, that God was pleased to open Paul's eyes and reveal his son to him. This is the motivation for Paul's pursuit of knowing Christ. He's been been touched by Jesus' undeserved love to him. 
The religiously scrupulous Paul was on his road, on the road to hell. But then Jesus intervened. He stepped in. He showered his love, his grace upon him. So this verse sets us straight on a very important point. Because our natural, our legal tendency is to think that we pursue holiness, we pursue uh, piety so that Jesus will embrace us. Or we think that because we're uh, complete and utter messes, spiritually, morally speaking, Jesus is going to want no part of us. Yet this is to get it backwards. Because the good news that the Bible tells us is that it's actually the reverse. We don't embrace holiness so that Jesus will embrace us. Instead, Jesus embraces us with the result that, as we're found in him, we'll come to embrace holiness. Because once Paul has tasted the sweet, everlasting love of Jesus, the Jesus who's taken hold of him, it's awakened in him a hunger, a thirsting to know more of him, the one who loved him and gave his life for him. He wants to know more of Jesus' power to transform him, to make him holy, to make him more like himself. Well, we're nearing our conclusion, but first we must look at the mature runner, and we'll do that in verses 15 and 16. Paul says, let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. First, we need to note what Paul's not saying here. He's not saying that it doesn't matter whether you see things his way or not. He's not saying that you can just have your truth uh, while Paul holds on to his. Paul's statement indicates that what he has just set forth to the Philippians is uh, mature thinking. It's thinking that's to be preferred. He implies that his teaching is from God. And if the Philippians or anyone else uh, takes a different attitude than Paul has just put forward, though, Paul expects that God will correct them. So while Paul has shown previously, even at the beginning of chapter 3, you might recall his strong language there, he's not going to tolerate those who are undermining the gospel. Paul does understand that on the spectrum of Christian experience, there's going to be some Christians who are more mature and some Christians who are less mature. Among those who are genuinely trusting in Jesus and who belong, into, uh, and who belong to him, there are those whose lives uh, genuinely lag behind their confession. Now, Paul here is not excusing sin. He's not saying that we should excuse those who willfully break God's commandments or who refuse to turn in repentance from their sin. There's a place for correction and restoring in a spirit of gentleness, even church discipline. Paul's not saying that we should tolerate gross doctrinal error or immorality, but he is saying that we should recognize the value of patience with our fellow Christians our fellow Christians who may or may not be as mature as we are, our fellow Christians who, like we are, are works in progress. Not everyone is going to be running the Christian race at the same pace. And while we want to encourage others in the race to make progress in it, to press on, even as Paul does in these verses, we're called to exercise patience with one another as we do that. Growth in Christ, progress in the race of faith, is incremental. It's not always fast. It's going to take a lifetime. Therefore, even as we should relentlessly press on ourselves to know more of Christ, we're called to demonstrate a patient concern for others. The emphasis being on patient there. We care, we encourage, we maybe are concerned, but we also trust God to convince and convict. 
That being said, friend, do you want to be a mature Christian? I hope you do. Just like in human development, we're not meant to remain as children, but to grow up into adulthood. That's the same in the Christian life. As we look at at our lives as, as Christian disciples, what does it mean, though, to be a Christian growing in maturity? Here, at least in part, is what it means. Here's three elements of Christian maturity. First, you've tasted the love of God in Christ to you. Jesus has taken hold of you. He's seized you, and you're trusting in him, resting in him. Second, you're increasingly aware of your sin and imperfection. You're painfully aware of how, though you may know many things about Jesus, this knowledge has not yet had its full effect. You know that you're not yet what you hope to be. And you're sensible of this, and you're grieved by this. You're grieved by the gap between who you are and what you will one day become. And third, as a result of that, Christian maturity means that you press on fervently, with focus, and with your face set to the prize of knowing Christ fully, seeing him face to face, and, fully, and finally and fully being transformed into his likeness. That's the promise, and that's the hope for all those who run the race by grace. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known, Paul says. Christian maturity is not about knowing true doctrines, though they are helpful and they are good, and we should strive to make progress in that regard. Christianity is not about, uh, Christian maturity is not about living up to a certain standard set by the person across the aisle from you. Nor is Christian maturity about behaving the right way, though certainly if you are growing in Christian maturity, uh, behavior will follow. Christian maturity consists, first of all, though, in this grace-driven, relentless pursuit of a person. We pursue Jesus. Seeing our imperfection, seeing our sin, we press on. We We strive, we strain forward to know more of Christ and to know more of his power to transform us to look like himself. So Harvest, with God's help, let's press on unto maturity together, seeking to know more of Christ day by day, year by year, decade by decade, until we take hold of Christ and all the riches that are found in him, those riches to which we have been graciously called. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you that by your grace we have been called, and we thank you that by your grace we have been redeemed, and we thank you that by your grace we have been set on this race to run after Jesus, to seek more of him, to come to know more of his power. And Father, we thank you that even as we consider that race, that pursuit, We can do so in the confidence of knowing that because you've invited us to it, you will grant us success in the endeavor, that you desire for us to know you and hunger after you. You're pleased by that. So, Father, I pray that you would work in us as a church family a desire, a hunger to strive, to press on, to know Jesus. You would encourage us in that pursuit by by sweeter tastes of of him and his power 
that you would help us to encourage one another in that pursuit. And Lord, where our desires are languishing, and certainly, Lord, we can all to some degree confess that they are languishing. We pray that you would revive them now and give us a fresh energy in it. We pray, Lord, that you would, for anyone here who is not trusting in Jesus, who has not tasted the sweetness of knowing Jesus by faith, that you would, you would grant them the saving faith that they stand in need of so that they too would press on to know Jesus, the Son of God who loves us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please uh, stand with me as we sing our song of response, All I Have is Christ. <laughs>